enjoyed the song service and look forward to the remainder of our time together. We're going to spend this morning um, really looking at Psalms 120 through 122 as a whole. We're not just going to rehash the last three Wednesday nights, but there's there's something about um, there's something about a broad theme that is uh, that's very very helpful as we try to put together details. The scripture is full of broad themes as it relates to um, really our life and how our life relates to the Lord. So maybe you think about something like Psalm 23 and the theme there is we are sheep and the Lord is our shepherd and he's caring for us. And very simple words, um, really a simple theme, but it's full of um, it's full of rich detail. One of the things that I think is helpful and a, and a lot of times I think is probably um, neglected is um, is trying to get a grasp on bigger themes in Scripture so that we know how to organize the details. Uh, I have um, been teaching a junior high Bible class for the last couple of years, and um, one of the things I've tried to reiterate is um, you got to have a bird's eye view before you can get a worm's eye view. You need to know the landscape before you start trying to make sense out of the details. And so this is going to be one of those messages where we're really going to draw back and just try to try to get a picture of the landscape. And I think if we can do that, then it does help us to be able to put the rest of the details into place. Again, a lot of times scripture does that through themes or what we would call stories, the story of a lost sheep who is who was uh, pursued and brought back by by the shepherd. If you've been here or you listened to any of these Wednesday night messages over the last couple of weeks, you don't have to guess very long to figure out what our, what our theme is. And um, Psalms 120 through 122, and really as we make our way forward, is really zeroing in on the fact that you and I are pilgrims on a pilgrimage. We're sojourning. We are um, traveling through. The world is that we currently live in, this world is, is not my home, but I am headed toward my home. Um, and so as we, as we come together and we get ready for uh, communion, you know, communion tells a story. Uh, we're here to declare something. It's the story of redemption, right? Outside of that, Communion really makes no sense. What we're here to celebrate is is the communion that we have with God through Christ. And we try to emphasize this every time because it's not just one dimensional. There's a reason why we don't say this week we're going to observe communion. Pick up your, your bread and wine on your way out and go home and do that because you're celebrating in isolation your relationship with the Lord. There's a reason why we come together and we do this together. Because we're here not just to celebrate the communion that we have with God through Christ, but we're also here to celebrate the communion that we have with one another through the work of Christ. And again, we could talk about that and frame that. Scripture frames that in different narratives, but the one we're looking at this morning 
is the fact that as we come together to this communion service, we're, we're declaring some things. We call it a pilgrim's declaration. There's several things that are being declared as we take the bread together, as we take the wine together, as we wash one another's feet and symbolic of commitment of serving one another throughout our pilgrimage. So I want to read Psalms 120, 121, and 122, and I'm just going to read them in sequence. I'm not going to stop, uh, and I think it's helpful that way to see the connection. So let me just start. Psalm 120. It says, In my distress I cried unto the Lord, and He heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given unto thee, or what shall be done unto thee, thou false tongue? Sharp arrows of the mighty with coals of juniper. Woe is me that I sojourn in Mesek, that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. My soul hath long dwelt with him that hateth peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. I will lift up my eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together. Whether the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, unto the testimony of Israel to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. For there are set thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Peace be within thy walls and prosperity within thy palaces. For my brethren and companions' sake, I will now say, Peace be within thee. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek thy good. So really we have three phases, we might say. Three movements, we might call them, of a pilgrim's journey. As he travels through a world that's full of distress, a world that is at war, where he finds a refuge, he finds his help in the Lord, the Lord who is his keeper, the one who guards him from his going in and his going out from this time forth and forevermore to where he is glad to hear his uh, brethren say, let's go to the house of the Lord. Let's, let's go there. Let's stand within the gates of, of Jerusalem. Really, it's marking off different phases Phases of the pilgrim's journey. And so I said earlier that really what we're going to talk about this morning is the fact that as we come together and take communion together, it's a pilgrim's declaration. So the question is, what are we declaring? And we're declaring some pretty fundamental things about the world that we live in, about the way that we understand life and ourself, and about the way we understand our future. 
So the three questions we're going to look at in light of these three psalms and this theme in general is, uh, where am I? Who am I? And where am I going? I don't know if you've thought about this before, but communion, as we come together and we observe what the Lord left for us to do, we're really answering those three questions. Where am I? Who am I? And where am I going? So question number one, where am I? Where am I? And the answer to that is, I'm, I'm in a broken world that is full of sin and suffering. If that's not the case, what we're getting ready to do this morning makes no sense. Okay, redemption makes no sense. I live in a world that is full of sin and suffering. Or the way Psalm 120, a world that's full of distress. And we talked about this on uh, you know, three weeks ago, I guess. What that means, it's a world that's full of affliction. A world that's full of anguish and adversity and adversaries and tribulations and troubles. The, the word there in Hebrew for distress is a word that literally means a, a tight place. We live in a world where we really go from one tight place to the next. And by tight place, I just mean these trials that shrink our world down to the size of whatever the trial is in the moment. You know what that's like. You're clicking along and um, everything seems to be fine. And just like that, your world shrinks down to whatever the trial is. It's all you can think about. It, it, it's, it's what you think about when you go to bed. It's what you think about when you wake up. It's what you think about as you go throughout your day. Well, um, that is an effect of the kind of world that we live in. Another way of saying that is, the fact that this world is a world full of distresses is not abnormal if you understand that you live in a world that is broken and full of sin and suffering. It's what you would expect. In Genesis chapter 47, this is the way, uh, this is the way Jacob would describe his life. Genesis chapter 47, as he's brought in by Joseph to, uh, to meet Pharaoh, in verse 9, it says in Genesis 47 verse 9, Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years, few and evil, or the word evil could be few and difficult, hard have been the days of the years of my life, and I've not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob comes before Pharaoh, and this is the way he really sums up his life. 130 years, that's a long life. 
says it was short and it was difficult. And you'll notice that this whole concept or big theme of pilgrimage is, this is not the first time it's used, but it's introduced early on. I mean, you, you can trace this throughout Scripture. This is how Jacob views his life. Way shorter than I thought it was going to be. Way more difficult than I thought it was going to be, is how we might say that now. So in a world full of distress, we face these adversities, these difficulties, in all kinds of shapes and sizes, all kinds of avenues. I mean, we're not unfamiliar with the fact that we face adversities as it relates to your our physical health. Adversities at work, adversities in the relationships that we have, adversities in our own hearts and in our own souls. I mean, isn't it a, you know this about yourself, if you have any kind of self-awareness at all, that you are so often at war with your own self. You're in conflict with your own self. You have that Romans 7 experience that Paul lays out when he says the things that I would do, I don't. The things that I wouldn't do, I do. It's the same kind of thing Brother Davis just mentioned were it not for the blood of Christ. The things that we've done that we hope nobody knows. The things that we've thought that we hope nobody will ever discover. Well, brothers and sisters, those are distresses. That's what that's the kind of trials, afflictions, anguish. It's a result of sin that brings suffering. And it's not just something that happens out there, it's something that happens right here. We have adversities in our churches, adversities in our schools. I mean, we could go all the way uh, into every institution we could think about. Adversities in our in our counties, in our cities, in our states, in our regions, in our nation, and, and all over the globe. You can't get away from the fact that you live in a world that's full of conflict, distress, and adversity. That's just the world we live in. That's the world that you've been called to take your journey through. And so the question is, why is this world this way? Again, the question that we're, the bigger question we're asking is, where am I? We answered that as we live in a broken world full of sin and suffering. Well, how did it get broken? That's really the question. You know, everybody acknowledges that the world's messed up. I mean, Christian, non-Christian, that doesn't matter. Everybody acknowledges we live in a broken world. The question is, how do we make sense out of that? Broken from what? How? Well, Romans chapter 5, verse 12 tells us how. Because of the sin of one man. Death was brought into the world. But it's not just Adam, although original sin is what initially broke the world. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 29 says that man was made upright, but he has gone after many devices. Now, the KJV, that's many devices, can be kind of vague. What what are they talking about when it says many devices? Well, man was made upright, but he has pursued 
many intentions and inventions of his heart. And when you take that in light of Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, when the Lord looked upon the heart of man and saw that it was evil continually, we have to ask the question, what is wrong with the world? Why is the world so broken? What is the problem with the world? And as we're here to take communion, our first answer after we get past the the generalities of original sin and that sort of thing, what's wrong with the world? Well, as we take the bread, as we take the wine, we're saying what's wrong with the world is me. It's not just something that's wrong out there somewhere. It's something that's wrong in here. Who is it that's pursued many devices? Me. Whose heart is it that the Lord looked upon and saw that the intentions were only wicked continually? Well, it was me. And as we get ready to, 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 to move into the reason why we celebrate the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Christ, well, without that declaration, Without that pronouncement, again, what we're doing makes no sense. And so the world is broken because the world is under the curse of sin. The world is populated with sinners. And where sin is, suffering will soon follow. You see, we we live in a world where We are sinned against, Psalm 120. But we also live in a world where we sin against others. And as much as we would like to say that's past tense, it's not. That's your story this week. That's my story this week. On the flip side of that, we live in a world where we endure suffering. we also live in a world where we inflict suffering on others. Now, the intensity may change as to what it is we're talking about, but the truth is still the same. Brothers and sisters, you recognize that because of your sin, other people have suffered. Because of your sin, other people do suffer. And because of your sin, other people will suffer. That's just part of what it means. Where am I? Well, I'm in a broken world that's full of sin and suffering. Where I'm a recipient of that. And I'm also a contributor to that. And as I try to navigate life, This is the terrain. It's a world that's difficult. It's a world that's dark in many ways. It's a world that's full of distress. It's a world that's full of affliction. That's where I am. That's where we are. 
And so I'd like to do something with this message that we did a while back, and I think it was helpful, and hopefully it'll be helpful again. Why don't you get your songbooks and turn to 481. We're going to try to sing a hymn to kind of reinforce each of these themes. Number 481. We're just going to sing verse 1. Brother Aaron's going to start that for us. See, brothers and sisters, that is such a foundational reality that, that our brothers and sisters in times past knew. Um, they knew it well because they didn't have a lot of the luxuries and the technologies that we have, which I'm thankful that we have them. But if you feel like you live in a world that is hard to navigate, that beats you up at times, you live in a world and you come to, well, this table this morning, recognizing your weakness, your frustrations, that things are just not the way that they're supposed to be. You live in the same world I do. You live in the same world that every other person in this room lives in. And it's a world that is full of suffering and sin and is broken. This is the world we navigate through. So then the next question is this, not just where am I, but who am I? Who am I? And we could answer this in a lot of different ways, but as far as the theme that we're going with this morning, the scriptural theme, as you come to the table, if you're a born-again believer this morning, who are you? Well, you are a blood-bought child of God, but that makes you, in this broken world of sin and suffering, it makes you a pilgrim. You're sojourning. That is, you are traveling through. This world is not your home. You have a, a another destination. Hebrews chapter 11 really really helps to answer, uh, or at least put some flesh on this, this uh, question or the answer to this question. Who am I? Hebrews chapter 11 is the, the chapter of uh, the hall of faith, right? Of the faithful. And in verse 13, in, in, in light of what the writer's been speaking about and who the writer's been speaking about, in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 11, he says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. What does it mean that you're a pilgrim? That you're journeying through? Well, just before we get any further, it means this. It means that you've received promises that you won't lay a hold of here. They're going to wait on you. 
I mean, it's going to be hard. You're going to struggle. You're going to wish you had them now, but you were never supposed to have them now. They're for later. But having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, for they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. So what, what's, the, what's the, um, the picture here? Well, the picture is that those who are walking by faith, those pilgrims who have been called out of darkness into light, recognize that they are headed to a better country. This whole idea of um, verse 15, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out of, they might have had opportunity to have returned. It just means if, if they had, if they put all their stock into this world, or if we're thinking about Abraham, if he would have been mindful, or if he would have been, um, had his mind set on Ur, he would have, he would have never left. He would have returned, but by faith, he followed the Lord's path. Or even those who came out of Egypt, and you know the struggle that they had there, but even still, or, or maybe Moses who left Pharaoh's palace and was, willing to endure affliction with his brothers rather than the pleasures of sin for a season. It's this idea that, again, this world is not my home. I could park it here and try to find my pleasures and treasures here, but they're only temporary. They're fading. They're broken. And so we're pilgrims headed to, headed for a a better country. What does that pilgrimage, what does that look like? What does it consist of? Well, 1 Peter chapter 2. Says it this way, 1 Peter chapter 2. In verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, Abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. You see, to be a pilgrim in this world and to be at war in this world is synonymous. Strangers and pilgrims are not at home in this world. This world wars against your soul. And your pilgrimage is going to be a fight. Now, when I say this world, I'm really talking about the way Scripture refers to the world system. You're not at home here. You recognize that. As a matter of fact, you're you're just like what Paul says in Romans 7.21. You recognize that when I would do good, evil is present with me. This is not the way it was supposed to be. It's a fight. It's a struggle. So how did we become pilgrims? How is it that we came out of this identity of being at home in the world, of putting all of our treasures in this world? Well, from an experiential standpoint, 
How did that happen? Look at Matthew 11. And I recognize there's more to say than what I'm going to say here. From an experiential standpoint, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 that you're very familiar with. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, how did we become pilgrims? Number one, the burden of sin became heavy. Right? The Holy Spirit brought some understanding to your heart and to your mind that you didn't have before. You began to see your life and your choices and just who you are in ways you had never seen it before. And then just as, again, Brother Davis mentioned this morning, not only were you faced with this burden of sin, but the Spirit, through the Word, pointed you to rest in Christ. All of a sudden, the cross of Christ became relevant to you. All of a sudden, it became real. All of a sudden, really, what it became was your only hope. Could I be forgiven? Could I be made just before a holy God? And so we came to Christ in faith, believing, trusting in His work on our behalf that we are accepted before the Father through Him. And then we publicly identified ourselves with Him through baptism and began a life of learning about Him and learning from Him. This is really what a pilgrim is, the kind of pilgrim we're talking about. It's one who's been brought out of darkness, translated into the kingdom of His dear Son, Colossians 1.16. And so what is this pilgrimage then that we're talking about? Well, it's, I mean, just in a nutshell and just for time's sake, it's, it's, it's the sanctification process. That's what it is. It's, it's Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13. It's you working out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God that has worked in you both the will and the do of His good pleasure. It's the Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 where we're um, living this life, ongoing life of putting off the old man and being renewed in the spirit of our mind and then putting on the new man. Those are some details, but really, what is our pilgrimage? What is sanctification? Well, we could just really boil it down to this. It's a life of faith. That's what it is. It's, it's the, I will look to the hills, but where does my help come from? 
You will never be interested in repentance if you don't understand that your help comes from the living God. You will never be interested in pursuing holiness if you don't understand that as you pursue holiness, it's a means of growing, practically speaking, of growing closer to a holy God in your day-to-day walk. You'll never be interested in this pilgrimage aside from faith. When we think about Psalm 121 and the fact that the Lord is our keeper, we said when we were there that the word keeper there could also be translated guardian. And, and really the sweeping summary at the end of that psalm is that in my going out and in my coming in, the Lord will keep me. He will preserve me. Same word. And we said, as we think about that in New Testament terms, how are we kept by the power of God? Well, first Peter answers that through faith. First John 5, 4 tells us that you will not primarily fight and overcome the world by effort. Okay, your effort's not enough. Uh, your your will in and of itself is not strong enough. First John five four says, "This is how you overcome the world. How? What is it that overcomes the world? I guess we should frame the question that way if we take the text the way it's laid out. This is that which overcomes the world, even your faith. Even your faith." We said as we began in Hebrews chapter 11 that pilgrims are given promises that they will not obtain on this side of heaven. We'll obtain those later. So how are we supposed to live in light of that? By faith. That's how. Faith protects our souls as we strive to embrace, rest in, and live on the promises of God. As we gather together and as we corporately take the Lord's Supper and enter into the communion service, we're saying we are striving to do this. We have committed ourselves to living a life that is characterized by these things. Who am I? Well, I'm a pilgrim who's not home who wants to be home, who's motivated by promises of home. And so, let's turn to 456. 456, we'll sing verses 3 and 4.
notice the phrase in that song, and I think it's an important phrase to zoom in on, is this, we're going to face adversity. We're going to face adversity from without. We have enemies. We're going to face adversity from within when the streams run dry. But what's going to happen? We'll go on. We'll go on. We're going to keep moving forward. And we're not going to be able to do that outside of the provisions that the Lord has given us, primarily the provisions that He's given us here together. Why is it that fellowship is so important? Why is it that we even celebrate the communion that we have with one another? Well, because brothers and sisters, because we are stirring one another up into love and to good works, which is another way of saying we're stirring one another up to go on. How many times have you faced difficulties and trials and just the effects of the, the, the world that we live in that brings fears and difficulties and sadness and sorrow and, and you just want to give up? Well, part of what it means to make a commitment to the one another's in Scripture is that we are committed this is, this is really Ephesians 4 type language. We are committed to this process until we all come to the fullness of the stature of Christ. What does that mean? It just means this. We are committed to the process of, of this walk of faith. Not just for me, but for us. When, when you think about body language, when one member Hurts, we all hurt, right? When one member struggles, we all struggle. Bear one another's burdens, Paul would say to the Galatians, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're pilgrims, plural, not singular. And we're living in a world that's full of sin and suffering. And what we're saying when we take communion this morning is, in light of all that, as we try to live the life of faith, as we face struggles and trials and difficulties, we'll go on. We'll go on. Why? Because it's our faith that overcomes the world. It's not because we think we're strong enough. It's because we believe that we're in the hand of one who will not let us go. And we are surrounded by brothers and sisters who love us, who care for us, and who will encourage us in times of difficulty. So where are we? We're in a world that is broken by sin and suffering. Who am I? I am a pilgrim who is journeying along in the life of faith. And then where am I headed? We looked at that this morning a little bit. Looked at it Wednesday. Where am I headed? You know, there is, uh, there's going to be a time where we don't take communion anymore. You know, communion's got a shelf life. We, we won't do it. It won't make sense for us to do it. Jesus told His disciples, do this until I come back. We're headed what, to what Hebrews 11, we just read it, calls a better country. Revelation 21 calls it the the new Jerusalem. We'll, we'll turn to Revelation 21 to make our, our comments here. Where, where are we headed? Well, we said this a good bit on Wednesday, but it's worth saying. We're headed home. 
we're headed home. You've been adopted into the family of God, right? But you're not home yet. You're headed there, but you're not there yet. Revelation 21 talks about, and this is all, this is imagery, but it's, there's lots of comforting truth here about what that's going to look like, what that's going to be like. We don't get tons of detail, but we get enough. John says in Revelation 21 verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and He will dwell with them. And they shall be His people and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. And He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Right, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Let's stop there. A couple of realities here. Where are we headed? Where are we headed? What does it mean to be home? Well, John describes this new Jerusalem coming down, and he says it's like a, a bride adorned for her husband. There's a bride that's adorned for her husband. We know what this marriage imagery is is referring to. It's the it's the the, the marriage of the Lamb. Okay, it's the consummation of redemption. What is it going to be like to be home? Well, do you ever wish that you had a closer relationship with the Lord? Maybe that you could feel His presence deeper, more intensely. Maybe that you could feel the comfort more consistently or, or, or even in a stronger way. The truth is, is that we are in the middle of the redemptive process, but the, the redemptive process is not finished. It's not been complete. We've received a lot, and we praise God for what we've received. But you have not yet taken possession of the full inheritance of the saints. One of these days you will. One of these days you're going to enjoy full unhindered fellowship with Jesus Christ face to face. You'll have no reason to be ashamed. You'll have no reason to blush. You'll have no reason to be guilty. You'll have no reason to run and hide and put those fig leaves on. It'll be full unhindered fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's what home is going to be like. Secondly, this is... Uh, um, in that same 
vain. But God will dwell with His people. It says, um, verse 3, God will dwell with His people in, again, unhindered fellowship. Nothing that will mess that up. Then it says, God will wipe away all tears. He's going to wipe away all tears. And there's more things that it refers to, but what does that mean? Does that mean people are going to be crying in heaven and God will wipe their tears and that'll be okay? That's obviously not what that means. This is a picture of complete wholeness and redemption from the world of sin and suffering. It's this realization that the glories that awaited were not worthy to be compared to the light afflictions we endure now. Some people wonder what's it going to be like in heaven? What will we remember? What will we not remember? Will we remember the things that were done to us? Will we have a knowledge of what happened here? I I think the answer to that is yes. We're going to remember who we were. We're going to remember what happened. And part of what it means for God to wipe away every tear means that you will interpret every sorrow you ever ever endured in light of redemption. Christ was using that. He was using that for my good and for His glory. We say that now and we have to say it by faith. One day every tear will be wiped because what we cry about now, as crazy as it sounds, we will rejoice in then. You say it doesn't make sense. Well, it shouldn't make sense because you're not home yet. But you will be. He says there's no more death. No more sorrow. No more crying. No more pain. It's no, no remnants of the former things, of the broken world. What's it going to be like when you get home? Well, it says in verse 6, remember he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, it's done. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Thirst is um, regularly used metaphorically for, for desires. What does this mean? It means you're going to be completely satisfied. Completely satisfied. You will not know what it means to be discontent. Isn't that something? There will be no smidge of it. I mean, you think about even the best things now, and there's always something to complain about. Not then. You'll you'll be home. So, brothers and sisters, as we move into our communion service, Really, we're, we're telling the story, acknowledging the story, acknowledging that we're part of it. That we've been made pilgrims. That this world is not our home. 
that by faith we're headed to a better country, and by faith we will possess that better country. And the reason that we will is because of the love of Jesus Christ and the blood that He shed for us and the ongoing work of redemption in us.